he said to us that after his injury, you know, when he was recuperating, he couldn't watch a match, watch a football match for, I think, well over a year, he said. Just the, just the sight and sound of someone going in for a tackle, given kind of the leg break that he suffered, was enough to, for him to say, no, I, I, can't, I can't watch this anymore. Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy, and this is the Locked Up Living podcast, where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, 6 o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast. So today's guest is John Nasori. John is a freelance journalist who writes about performance psychology's role in sport for publications, including the BBC and The Guardian. He tells stories on subjects ranging from first first World Cup winning psychologists to weightlifting beauty queens and produces The Mind Room, a weekly newsletter covering psychology focused stories from around the world of football. So a bit of a different guest for us today, but really delighted to welcome you along today, John. I'm looking forward to this conversation with you. Likewise, they're delighted to be on the show. Hi, John. Very good to meet you. Thanks for coming along today. So, John, your background is in journalism and communications. How is it you've come to spend so much time uh, thinking about and promoting psychology? Yeah, it's not a subject that's that's covered a lot in the in the media to, to kind of any great depth anyway. And that's one of the reasons that I started looking at it. So I trained as a journalist uh, about 12 years ago now and after kind of toying with the idea of of going full-time opted to kind of spend most of my kind of working week kind of concentrating on on marketing and and comms but about about three years ago I had a conversation with with my wife actually and we were just talking about uh, the team I support Spurs and there were I think a couple of players maybe three or four players out injured at the time it was a bit of a crisis and she just said to me, "Oh, I wonder, I wonder how, I wonder how the players are kind of feeling. How do they kind of, how do they respond when they come back from from injury?" And I, I kind of said, oh, "Yeah, they, you know, they usually take a while to kind of get get back up to speed." And she just said, oh, "Why, why, why is that?" And to my shame, given the fact that I've followed followed the game for kind of you know that point, you know, thirty years, I, I couldn't really say very much about the topic. To be honest with you, I, kind of, I think I said something about kind of confidence, but I, mean, I really didn't know what I was talking about. I you know, didn't know anything about stuff like you know, fear of re-injury or muscle guarding or any of those kind of things. And it just got me thinking, you know, I probably should kind of take a bit more, a, a bit more attention on the subject. And then started looking around uh, at what was being reported. And generally what you'll find, although this is changing and that's, that's fantastic, generally what you'll find, I think, when you, when you look at kind of articles that talk about mental health or psychology, they really kind of skim the surface of, of kind of, of the subject primarily because it's it's a very complex topic and I think secondly because it's just not something that until recently has kind of been openly discussed and I just thought you know that sound that looks like to me something that would be really interesting to write about um and 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 that was about three years ago and yeah it's been the case I mean I've just been been really fortunate to kind of speak to psychologists coaches players from you know around Europe and uh, without exception they're all just you know fascinating individuals and when you're talking about that that part of of football or sport in general I think it lends itself to being a much more interesting discussion 
personally speaking, then if you're talking about, you know, tactics or the physical side of, of sport, um, yeah, so I, that, that's kind of how it how it came to be. And yeah, as I said, it's been yeah, been a fantastic kind of three years and very much kind of an educational journey from, from my perspective as well. So I'm keen to know what you found out uh, now. You you mentioned that you got drawn into this area through think, thinking about injuries. So what's it like for someone? Because some of them may be out, football might be out for almost a year with a cruciate ligament injury say i mean what's that like for them yeah i mean i think the thing you realize when you start speaking to players that have been through a long-term injury or psychologists that have worked with players that have a long-term injury is the 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 significance of the impact that 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 it does have you know we spoke on the podcast that um, I produced David Beast, who's probably, you know, among kind of Premier League players, the kind of most high-profile high victim of a, you know, ultimately a kind of career-ending career ending injury. And, you know, when he was, he said, to, he said to us that after his injury, you know, when he was recuperating, he couldn't watch a match, watch a football match for, I think, well over a year, he said, just the, just the sight and sound of someone going in for a tackle given kind of the leg break that he suffered. Was enough to for him to say no. I, I can't. I can't watch this anymore. And uh, uh, so you kind of start to realise that the the level of the psychological impact that an injury has on uh, on a player. Uh, you know, we again. You know, I spoke into psychologists that have said you know they've worked with players that you know even if they're in treatment room for a spell of a few weeks, will have their kind of face pressed up against the glass, looking out at teammates. It, it you know for a lot of players it. And you know, not necessarily kind of a positive thing, but for a lot of players, it is what they live for. Uh, I think you know, in terms of the kind of psychological aspects of, of that, yeah, I think you know there are real, the kind of real dangers that you know people kind of who are much more, um, are much more kind of uh, educated in this this realm than I am will kind of talk about. But you know, there there, there are instances where you know players have unfortunately kind of gone into kind of spirals that kind of that lead them towards anxiety depression um and, and then coming back from coming back from that it, it is is a really tough process um again you know a lot of people out there that will kind of be more familiar with this than, than i am but having spoken to kind of coaches and psychologists you know players even again if, if you're talking about spell out, spell out the side for a few weeks will be kind of doing stuff like, you know, in training, you know, making sure that if they've got a hamstring injury, they're doing everything they can to kind of prevent themselves picking up a hamstring injury, but to the detriment of, you know, some of the other, um, you know, some of their other kind of muscle areas. And you kind of start to realise that it, the impact's kind of all-encompassing. Um, and that was just, yeah, just something that I've got to say I really wasn't aware of to any, to any great extent. And it just, I suppose you know, when you kind of see players being torn apart for not playing particularly well after they've come back from, you know, a long spell out on the sidelines, it makes you appreciate what they're going through and maybe why they're not kind of hitting hitting their straps in the way that they did before they picked up the, the injury. As you were talking, it sounded, um, it sounded like this 
significant potential for post-traumatic stress disorder actually you know when you talk about not being able to watch watch games for fear of what might come up you know that avoidance of triggers to an injury and of course in a in a elite athlete their their body and being able to the body being able to perform and then not being able to you can see how there's the potential for that that as a trauma yeah absolutely and I think one of the other interesting things just you know from speaking to to David about that injury was the impacts that it has on the people kind of around you as well I mean he said that he got to the point where he felt the impacts on the players in his squad was such that he he stopped going into See, at the time he's kind of going into the training grounds to do his rehab program and just said he didn't want to go in anymore because he felt that it was having too much of an impact on the players around him. And again, it just, uh, you know, as a fan or even as someone that, you know, follows the game kind of relatively closely, you're quite a lot of the time, you're just not privy to that, that side of things. And it's very easy to forget, you know, particularly if you kind of support a a club and you know you watch players you know kind of deliver what you kind of regard as a subpar performance it's just that there's so much more kind of going on behind the scenes than than you're aware of yeah very interesting that so psychologists and journalists both make their living out of uh, communicating effectively or at least as effectively as we can and yet we often impact on very different uh, audience what do you think are some of the parallels and differences in in how we communicate? Yeah, so it's, it's such a good such a good question. I mean, I I think that you know, in terms of the in terms of the parallels, and I you know, I suppose we might come onto this, but you know, there's a certain perception of of the press and the kind of media at large that, that maybe isn't kind of that, that maybe isn't kind of you know, reflected in, in in reality. But I think you know, certainly journalists that. That I know I've worked with, they uh, look to understand their subjects, you know, I suppose, you know, subject both kind of in terms of the topic area, but also the, maybe the person that they're covering in real detail. And I guess that's, you know, in terms of kind of understanding the personal topic that you're communicating about or with, I, I'd, I'd say that there, there are some, you know, there are some similarities there. Uh, and and I, I also think that Again, you know, just touching on on the parallels, I, I think whenever whenever I've spoken to to psychologists, what what you find really encouragingly is that they're able to that that, that they're able to empathise with with someone and and really kind of get to grips with with what they're saying, you know, really understand what they're saying. I think that's a skill that as a journalist, you you know, you you, you really need. And again, most of the most of the journalists that that I've worked with. Are very much in in that mold you know that they'll, they'll, they'll be able to pick up on kind of nuances of, of conversation and kind of um and report those you know accordingly I've, i mean obviously there are kind of there are kind of real differences um you know i, I suspect there aren't many psychologists that are kind of looking for a headline hopefully not when they kind of go in to speak to speak to players um you know and you know in in that respect i think there were you know that there, there is a difference in in the way that that you know as journalists you get to communicate with you know whether a coach a player or a psychologist that that you're speaking to you know one of the things i i kind of try and do when i'm speaking in particular to psychologists because that it, it is difficult sometimes to talk about the the work that they're doing in real depth because of confidentiality is just to try and 
really kind of look for some of the details that, that we can discuss and kind of hone in on those and really kind of kind of dig beneath the surface uh, a little bit. I suppose that's, that's maybe there are more kind of similarities on that front. Um, I guess you kind of do have to do that again as a psychologist to really kind of get to grips with the person that you're kind of speaking to. Um, so yeah, and I think I think there are kind of more more parallels than you you might kind of suspect. You know, again, I think there's there's probably a perception of of the media and the press that's kind of rooted in, you know, ultimately I suppose what the kind of tabloid press was like, you know, in in the kind of eighties and nineties. Um, and as I said, you know, from my experience, that's just that that's just not reflected in in the reality. Um, you know, I think particularly as I think particularly as you see, again, we might come on to this, particularly as you see kind of uh, the media change, the media landscape changing as well. There's, I think there's less, there's kind of less and less room for, for that kind of journalism, um, which is, you know, which is obviously a positive development. I was thinking as you were talking, John, um, that the storytelling element is there for both, both roles as well, because I, I, I guess for both of us, there needs to be a coherent story, you know, so a lot of, psychological ways of thinking is about being curious about the person and trying to understand how they've ended up in the situation that they're in and what that pathway was like and so you you're hoping to have a a bigger picture at the end where the pieces make sense together and I guess that's the point to journalism as well that you need to present your audience with a story that makes as coherence and makes sense um and this, it's quite frustrating, isn't it, when we um, see stories in the media where there isn't really an explanation, but some kind of like crude, um, blunt um, assumption that, it, for instance, where David and I are both working um, in forensic, the idea that people are born evil. And that's the that's what's presented rather than the fact there's a whole story behind that. Yeah. And, I, you know, I, I think, again, it, it's about from a kind of from a journalist perspective I think you know people that that I've worked with do kind of really dig into to kind of stories that that they write uh I've I've you know there, there are obviously kind of dynamics at play that kind of you know if you're working for a particular kind of publication I'm, I'm fortunate kind of kind of you know force you into kind of a particular into writing kind of a particular type or kind of style of of story but yeah, again, as I said, I, th- I think from certainly from what from what I've seen in the last few years, I'm kind of encouraged by the way the industry is is actually developing. Although you know, th- I've, th- there's not a huge deal of certainty as to kind of the direction in which in which it will go. I think it, that does mean there are kind of pockets of of the industry that can kind of really flourish. Great. So drawing you back a bit, uh, John, and, and and thinking about what you were saying earlier. What- what kind of lessons might psychologists take from journalism? You know, apart from seeking headlines, and sometimes I suspect that some therapists, psychiatrists, and psychologists are in fact seeking headlines and exploit that to some extent. But apart from that, um, what kind of skills do you think uh, psychologists might pick up from uh, journalists? Yeah, I mean, again, such a such an interesting question because it's not it's not kind of a, a link that that you kind of normally normally draw on. But I mean, I I think you know one of the things that that you're taught when you're kind of running when you're running for your, your journalism training is you know the 
the kind of ability to be kind of succinct and simple in the way that you in the way that you communicate the way that you tell a story uh there's you know the the kind of slightly antiquated test now is kind of the pub test is kind of what the the, the journalism training kind of teaches you know can you tell the story if you're not telling the story in a way that you couldn't tell um someone at the pub then you're not telling it in in a simple enough way and i, I you know i do think there's there's an element of of that that the psychology profession um could could potentially learn from not i you know and that's that's not to kind of tie everyone with the same same brush but there's a really good there's a really good quote on online from i think it was martin turner the other day he was talking about about this topic and he said i did i did actually make a note of this he did because he said you know what 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 the kind of profession has an, an, an unfortunate ability to do is to turn something like a a uh, a shovel and um calling it and call it a cutting edge performance shoveling device you know <laughs> that i think for me is is sometimes what i have to get through because there are sometimes you know obfuscations in, in the way that people kind of describe the work they do although the one thing i would say that goes for loads so many industries so i work in a, you know my other and my other kind of the other industry that i work in is the technology industry and and again that is littered with buzzwords and acronyms and uh something that you really have to kind of wade wade through in order to actually understand sometimes what uh someone's trying to tell you so i, th- I think that that's something i i think the i think the other thing that that i'm not so not necessarily sure it's about learning from but certainly another kind of similarity that i found as a freelancer sometimes is kind of this idea of almost being a bit of a an outsider kind of looking in on a on a an, an industry or a field you know a lot of psychologists that i speak speak to that work for football clubs have that issue you know there's that feeling of kind of imposter syndrome sometimes um, you're the only psychologist in the club, you know. Um, you know, sometimes if you're a female psychologist, might might be the only woman working at at that football club. Um, and being a freelance journalist sometimes is is frankly quite isn't a million miles away from that. So, uh, you know, you're often either having to kind of put yourself out there to editors that you don't have a prior relationship with. Again, football is is a relatively closed shop, so developing relationships with players, coaches, psychologists is, is, is something you have to kind of do on your own a little bit. Uh, and that, yeah, so I, I definitely, when I speak to psychologists, sometimes I, I definitely recognise some, some of the kind of gripes that they understandably have with, with their kind of, with their profession. That brings us quite nicely onto the next question, actually, John, which is one of the things I've really enjoyed about your blog, The Mind Room, is that you're writing about a profession that's very poorly understood by the sector it's operating in, which obviously resonates with uh, David and I. And you're writing about applications of psychology within quite a macho industry. What are some of the challenges you faced in doing this? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I, I think... I suppose encouragingly, I think it's becoming less challenging to to kind of bring up these subjects. I think I'm not actually got around to reading the story, but I think there's a story today that's broken about Jesse Lingard and his battle with. I, I, I'm, I hope I'm not kind of quoting this incorrectly, but I, 
definitely saw a couple of references to the fact that he kind of explicitly mentioned depression in the in the interview that that he was um, giving to the Guardian. And so I think it, things are moving in in the right direction. That you know that said, uh, I've definitely spoken to you know spoken in particular. I think not not to the people themselves, but maybe kind of club officials that are nervous about talking about this particular about psychology or or mental health because of how it could be portrayed uh and that's you know that i suppose that's just something we have to kind of navigate and you know hopefully there'll be a point at which you know it's pitching a an interview on the basis of speaking to someone about their um you know their psychological state of mind or or kind of psychological performance is as kind of commonplace as talking to them about you know what they're doing um what they're doing on the pitch because ultimately the two are kind of completely interrelated but yeah i th- that that is one of the things that that i've kind of found um I, I, but again i think you know they're, they're encouraging not only a players kind of actually talking about this but there are some that are really showing some some leadership as well in this area so you know i spoke to um to david wheeler who's a midfielder who plays for um wickham wanderers recently um, and he, I mean, just incredibly articulate, really, you know, really determined individual. You know, he um, has gone from a point where you know he was suffering from, from panic attacks as a as a young athlete to the point where it's really affecting not just his sporting performance but also his personal life as well. Um, to uh, to a point where he's you know he's now completed a psychology master's just just. Pre- just produced as part of that some some research which will be published i think next next year at some point which you know talks about why psychologists aren't better represented in english football and does that with you know real real kind of candor and he's you know now in a position i think where he's able to talk about this subject in a really kind of erudite way and i think there are more play i think there are more players hopefully that will emerge over the course of um over the next few years that can start to kind of lead this debate a little bit. And, you know, hopefully then we get to a point where, um, yeah, as I said, not only are the, not only is it easier to talk about this stuff, but we're actually kind of making some progress in dealing with some of the issues as well, because I know, you know, certainly speaking to David, he, he kind of feels there's, there's so much more that, that football can do. And it's encouraging that there's a player that's talking about that now with, with kind of some degree of sophistication. It's interesting as well, I think, because obviously I think where psychology has had a bit of an impact is around um, things that are very obviously labelled under performance. Um, but obviously we also know that mental health and mental well-being, which comes from, you know, is a different branch of psychology, impacts, um, very, you know, can, can have a different impact, including in terms of injury, because obviously if you're carrying stress or trauma, within your body you're more likely to incur an injury so you know the it feels like there's an awful lot more that psychology could be offering to sport not just football um if people could feel less anxious about flagging up vulnerability which ultimately is is what people end up having to talk about isn't it yeah and sadly you know that i think one of the reasons that that it apart from the facts i said that you know, club officials in London are nervous about how it's going to be portrayed in the press. You know, one of the reasons that players are reluctant to to talk about it is, is the impact, unfortunately, on on, for example, their you know their place in the starting lineup or their place mm-hmm. in the squad, their relationship with with their manager. Uh, 
because again you know this is something that david's research looked at you know that there are still kind of quite archaic attitudes from you know those working within the game as to what what psychology actually is you know the the impact that it that it has usually maybe on someone but you know on both their performance and and mental health and yeah and you know that there are you know very much instances of you know players you know for example being kind of denied access to psychologists even though there's a you know demand from the, from both the player and the psychologist because of a you know identified area mm-hmm. of, of vulnerability so yeah that is that is something that will take quite a long time to to correct uh, but as i said you know at, le- at the very least you know there's there's some progress i think if you look I mean, pretty much everyone I've spoken to has said, you know, if you look back 20 years, things things have changed. It's not as though no progress has been made, even if, you know, there's some frustration that it's not it's not happened quicker. Thank you. And another blog you wrote, um, which was, was really interesting, was where you pointed out that the British Olympic Association were advertising for psychologists to work for free during the Olympics, which kind of communicates a lack of value placed on 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 these kind of professionals do you ever think the fact that you're not a psychologist gives you a bit more freedom to write these kind of articles yeah I think undoubtedly it does you know I've spoken to people that uh, have you know have issues with the with with exactly that that kind of subject uh, who aren't able to talk about it freely because they work in the industry and understandably they're you know nervous about the ramifications of talking about stuff like that on on the record so yeah I think it it you know, it does give me a bit more freedom to, to talk about that, about that kind of subject uh, with the kind of scrutiny that, that it deserves. I mean, it's obviously it's, you, you know, you've got to be, it's got to be substantiated, um, you know, quite often, you know, with that kind of story in particular, I'll, um, I'll speak to psychologists off the record just to see, okay, is actually, is this something that you, in your opinion, kind of warrants, um, warrant story because uh, you know quite quite a lot of the time as I said I'm aware that I've only been I've been working in this kind of field for kind of three years a lot of people that I speak to have been working it for two decades so you know know it far better than I do Um, so I I think in in that respect you know conscious that uh, you know from from my side that I'll always always kind of reach out and speak to people um, about these issues but yeah, it does give me a bit more freedom. Um, I mean, you know, something else on kind of a related subject, you know, you know, written about about kind of you know psychologists' pay and, and regulation within English football, uh, and that is, I again, you know, after, after writing that, I, I've been in contact with people in you know America, Australia that have talked about exactly the same issues. Um, so I, you know, don't I don't think a lot of these problems are kind of confined to to kind of you know English football that's just that just happens to be the kind of you know the the field in which I'm operating in in at the moment um because I, I know again I've speak, spoken to a lot of psychologists in this field sometimes I think you know, there's a feeling that you know it's an industry specific thing but I think you know if it is if there is some reassurance to be honest that it's happening in other countries as well so uh, yeah um you know the definite strides we've made across across kind of um across the globe absolutely 
So I used to work work with someone who was regularly called by the press for a quote, and it was a standing joke actually in the office that he'd always he seemed to have put his name on on all these lists to be available to be consulted. But whenever anyone called, he'd avoid the opportunity out of her fear he'd be misquoted and made to sound like he'd said something he hadn't. Does this perception of journalism bear any resemblance to reality? Do you think? Um, it's re- such an interesting point because I, I think I think you know if you go back, I don't know, you know, for, well, maybe not 40, you know, 20, 30 years, then I maybe, you know, maybe that, that, that kind of attitude was a bit more prevalent. Um, I, again, from my experience, the people that I've worked with don't operate in that, in that way. It is, and, you know, certainly the, the kind of stories that, that, you know, uh, that I'm writing, that again, people that I'm close to are writing, just don't lend themselves to that kind of that kind of strategy, that that kind of tactic. Um, you, know, you have to be upfront with people um, because you're talking about. Well, I mean, I certainly think you have to be upfront with people anyway. You're talking about some really personal personal issues, um, and ultimately, ultimately, it's about you know getting to the root of those stories is about trust. Um, if there's no if there's no trust there, then you won't you won't get someone to talk in the depth that, that you kind of need them to talk about um, talking. So I, I, I mean, I I have heard of I have heard of those kind of stories. Um, so I'm def you know, and obviously everyone's kind of you know well aware of of you know the way the kind of tabloid press operated in you know eighties, nineties, early two thousands. So I'm not saying it doesn't happen, um, but I as I said, I, I, I suspect it's it's very infrequent um certainly kind of within the the field that i'm operating ultimately which is kind of you know sport and and psychology i've got to say i think it very very rarely happens if ever yeah i have to say it's not been i've given quite a few quotes over over time and i that's not been my experience at all and it reminds me a little bit of psychologists and psychological therapists that engage with court processes that people can be very frightened of being hung out to dry in court but I think actually if you're sticking to talking about an area that you know something about and you're doing it with integrity then I think my experience is that people treat you in a very reasonable fair way and I do wonder whether some of the ways that people have been made to sound um silly might be because they've actually stepped outside their sphere of competence and 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 perhaps not communicated in a very effective way yeah I think that's I think that's a really I think that's a really fair point and I know there was, you know, there's a story that I think that broke this this week, maybe about kind of about Beth Mead and some comments that that she made about kind of diversity within the women's game. And uh, I thought the journalist in question, you know, he wrote an article. I think it was yesterday or the day before, actually, where he kind of explained from his point of view what had gone on, what the process was. And you read it, and it is, it is quite, you know. Again, obviously, wasn't there in the interview, so um, kind of looking at this from a from a distance. But you know, he he was talking about the fact that ultimately he's transcribing a quote, um, and it's quite difficult, even if some of the context around that quote is changed. I appreciate that sometimes is you know does lend itself to some kind of misinterpretation but ultimately it is what she said um and i, I think as you said Amy, sometimes it, it, it's easy for someone 
to talk about something those subjects uh, on which they're not kind of an expert and um you know say something that maybe is just slightly clumsily worded um and, and you know i think as long as a journalist as long as you're you know as long as you're not um kind of overplaying your hand in saying in i don't know for example kind of focusing the article completely on that 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 quote i think that's that's kind of fair that's that's you know that's that you're putting forward ultimately something that someone said as part of an article and and you know sometimes it yeah as i said sometimes you know it won't always be um you know be a kind of 100 flattering but you know that that is the job of a journalist is to report the story you know it's not, it's not to be a kind of you know a, a, a pr agent but it's good to hear that sense of balance because I suppose one of our motivations for having you on the podcast is to really want to encourage uh, psychological um, therapists to engage with uh, human stories in the in the media because actually that way people do understand more about um, ways of working and I think perhaps some of the problems that people have in um, depicting people who offend in a certain way uh, might be because there isn't enough engagement of psychologists and psychological therapists with the media. I don't know what you think, David. Well, I think I think you've kind of put your finger on something in, in that I do think there's a lot of fear and anxiety about and connected with journalists, journalists, but also, of course, connected with psychologists and psychology. So there's a tremendous anxiety about losing potency, losing strength. So and you can link this back as far as the story of Samson and Delilah, because Delilah's seeking to get uh, uh, Samson's secret from him. And of course, when he tells her, she cuts his hair off and he does lose his strength. But of course, that's the anxiety, but it's only an allegory. Uh, I don't know what you think about that, John. That's oh, a really interesting example. I, I hadn't, I, that wasn't the, yeah, the, the analogy that kind of sprung immediately to mind, but yeah, it's a great example. I mean, I think it, yeah, it's interesting. Sometimes the, the kind of anxiety, it, it kind of I, stems from, you know, the, 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 I guess the way that, you know, journalists sometimes kind of look to tackle these, these subjects. Uh, I think, I think the one thing I would say, maybe it goes back to what we were talking about earlier, is that uh, you know ultimately, if, if if a profession is is interested in being represent represented, but is interested in being kind of talked about a little bit more, then you know there might be a, a slight compromise in the way that um, in some of the terminology used, for example. I mean, there was an article. There's an article I wrote that uh, someone kind of got in touch with me about and kind of said, well, you know, the first thing he talked about is, or one of the things he kind of spoke about was kind of neuroscience and that's not what psychology is. And I kind of said, well, uh, okay, in the article, actually there, there are kind of at least kind of four or five other examples I gave of, you know, how a psychologist works with a, with a football player. And, and that could be anything from kind of chats on, on the training ground through to kind of using, you know, techniques like visualization or, self-talk but you know that if you're writing for a particular publication and you want to capture the interest of people that might not know anything about psychology then yeah sometimes you will have to talk about some of the things that are 
uh, a little bit more uh, unusual, I suppose. Um, you know, ultimately, there aren't loads of people that, if you're not really interested in the subject, it's going to be kind of that interested in, in if they see a headline that says, you know, psychologist talks the player on edge of pitch. You know, that's just not not something that that's going to, you know, catch many many people's imagination. So, I think that that's that's the kind of one thing I, I would say is that um, that there's a you know there's a way of of translating some of the some of the you know particularly some of the really strong academic work that's going on or and even and, and also at kind of practitioner level as well into um more kind of mainstream stories without diluting it to the point where um you know psychologists should be should be kind of um you know anxious or kind of offended by how it's portrayed yeah thanks very much so john journalism seems like had a bit of a crossroads at the moment. Um, people are much less likely to buy a newspaper. I haven't bought a newspaper for years, for example. How do you see the profession developing? Yeah, it, I think, I mean, yeah, I, I can't remember the last time I bought a newspaper, to be honest, though. Yeah, it's been a long, long time. Uh, I, I think it's, it's interesting. So, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, real me from... Uh, you know, across the industry from relying on ad revenue to subscription revenue. Um, uh, I think the one, you know, and, and obviously the last, over the last kind of few days as well, you're kind of seeing that, you know, social media, I think, you know, it's about to change in, in quite, a, quite a radical way potentially as well. Um, I think that does offer some opportunities um, that are quite, I think, hopefully quite positive for, for the industry. Um, you know, I think it, it, if people are prepared to, to kind of pay for a, a service then it, it does give and i you know i've i've spent um some very small amounts of money on subscriptions over the course of the last few years um with you know niche publications that really kind of get to grips really understand the subject area that they're dealing with um and yeah I, I, and because they're not relying on advertising revenue you know they they don't have to you know they don't have to write articles that are um you know optimized for search engines and they don't have to kind of you know they, they don't have to to kind of you know write stuff that is is kind of pushing a particular angle um they're freer to, to write about something that um that they know a lot about and so i think that does offer some some really interesting opportunities actually um and i i think you know there'll be platforms like you know substack um that's the platform that i i run my newsletter off um that i think hopefully will will kind of continue to grow because uh, you know i i i use that as a reader probably almost more than more than i do as a writer actually you know loads of really good publications on on there um that just offer a slightly different type of of journalism to to that which you you know which you saw you know even kind of five five years ago more in depth you know, more analytical. Um, and, and I think that's, I think that's really positive personally. Um, I just hope that, you know, over the course of the next few years that that's sustainable because obviously there's, you know, there's certainly in the, in the UK, if not, you know, across kind of Europe and, and wider, that, you know, there, there is obviously um, a limit to the amount of money that people can pay for these, these kind of things, but, you know, fingers crossed that that, that continues. But I guess you would be fairly unusual in seeking out that kind of, uh, journalism. I mean, I subscribe to the New York Times. 
I read The Guardian and The Independent. And yet, strangely enough, I probably read more of the Daily Mail and The Express than I've ever read in my life because they appear on various feeds, you see, although I tend to only see the headlines and that tells me enough anyway. <laughs> but uh, then, then, of course, we've got the example of Twitter where it seems to be that seems that there's the potential for communications to be taken over by somebody who well appears to be deranged sure this is quite dangerous yeah i mean that i'd be interested to see what happens over the course of you know the next the next few months i mean there are yeah i'd be really interested to see what happens i mean so you, you know at the moment you're kind of seeing uh, you know, I, I know this because you know, I'm, I'm sub- subscribed to the platform. But I mean, you know, certainly kind of Substack are kind of really pushing, pushing some of the some of the kind of chat chat features that, that potentially offer replacement to, to Twitter at the moment. I think that there, there will be obviously more companies like that out there, you know, trying to fill trying to, trying to fill a void. Um, and that said, I, there are so many influential people and groups tied to Twitter. Um, I, yeah, I, 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 I'd be, I'd be surprised if it, it just, it, it kind of collapsed that suddenly. I, I just think that, yeah, as I said, that there are so many, you know, very influential groups of people that uh, are kind of tied to that platform. Um, that I, I think it, it, it would be quite a move if, 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 um, if it was kind of you know, disbanded so kind of so suddenly, um, although who knows, because as you, as you said, David, it's a very unique individual. So, yeah, who knows? Good phrase, isn't it? A very unique individual. Yeah. Thanks for that. <laughs> well, I thought it was interesting. There was just such a mass, mass outcry about all these blue ticked people are going to depart. And I think whilst I do follow some people who've got blue ticks by their name, I'm actually much more interested in people offering analytical comments on a whole wide range of issues. They're not celebrities, um, but they really know their subject area really well. And that's what I'm interested in. And that will, you know, that will stay the same, surely. So, Yeah, I, 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 yeah, I completely agree with that, Amy, actually. I mean, I, I, I can't remember the last person I followed because they had a you know, blue tick next next to their name. Well, I understand that you know this. You know, it does have maybe kind of some implications if you're talking about you know, kind of stories, uh, the breaking stories that involve kind of you know national security matters, something like that. I, I, I get I get why you know there's some kind of verification in place, but um, yeah, I mean it's I, yeah, it, it's a little bit of a storm in a teacup to some extent. Moving on from this uh, chaotic area. Um, John, another parallel between journalism and psychology is that for many people, they end up spending a portion of their working week engaged in freelance work. What do you think are some of the stresses associated with freelance work? And and do you have any advice that you'd give to others to to manage these stresses? Yeah, I I, I think there are some real kind of issues with with freelance work that that I found so I think you know one is you know happened particularly during you know the the, the kind of various lockdowns is that is that kind of that that uh kind of slightly artificial uh feeling that, that you kind of need to be you know kind of always on um yeah because uh, ultimately you, you know the well, one of the nice things about freelancing is that you you can kind of you know spend 
15 minutes here, 20 minutes there, you know, working on a story or contacting someone. But that that can that can become um, you know, all consuming. Um, and that's that's really something that I know of the freelancers, you know, from kind of speaking to them have have found difficult to to deal with. Um, I think establishing a routine on that front is really important. Um, I I try and make sure that I limit myself to checking social media three times a day. Um, I don't always manage it, but but, but by and large, I'm, I'm relatively good on on that front. I just find it it becomes again a little bit overwhelming sometimes if if you're kind of on there constantly, and particularly sometimes if you're you know if you are a journalist not all the comments that you receive are necessarily positive and sometimes you know there are i think there there are there are kind of you can fight that battle sometimes and sometimes it's just it's just a question of kind of moving on from it a little bit so i think having a routine is incredibly important um i think um i think the other thing that i kind of thought was that um avoiding kind of comparison um was was something that again I think you can kind of fall into, into the trap of, um, you know, I, I, sometimes it's it's kind of really easy to look at kind of journalists that you know that are kind of putting stories out left, right, and centre, and kind of think, oh my god, how are they, how are they doing this? Where are they finding the time? And you've just got to kind of stop yourself um, from trying to kind of emulate others. Um, I mean, this is why kind of back to the start of the conversation, I suppose, you know, why it's been really useful for me, to be honest, to be speaking to psychologists on such a regular basis, because you start to learn a little bit more about how you're operating as an individual. Uh, and just, you know, having that that kind of sense of, of perspective on on the job that you're doing, ultimately, it's just, it is just that. Um, you know, fortunate to be in a position where I can write about some topics that I'm really interested in, I think, and I think uh, are really worthwhile but um but ultimately it's you know it's it's a job and um and i i think you know if you can kind of make sure you kind of retain that sense of perspective then um yeah you're in a really good place thank you so john world cup season is upon us and given your most recent blog um relates to this i thought it'd be uh, interesting to get your your thoughts on given the fact there was a psychologist at the world cup Long, way back in 1958 why has it taken so long for psychological thinking to penetrate the world cup do you think i mean it's it's amazing when you think about it really you know the brazilian and fa who employed that that psychologist name were were kind of so far ahead of, of their time uh certainly football wise i mean there, there, there were i've seen kind of references to psychologists using in sporting circles around that time but they were they were kind of uh, almost pushed into using a psychologist because of the fact that the, the kind of previous two World Cups have been such disaster for for Brazil. So, you know, they were essentially kind of, uh, and obviously this is this is kind of person to teams now, but they were essentially searching for kind of an area of advantage, any area of advantage. And yeah, and they said, well, okay, you know, why don't we look at psychology? You know, as an area that 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 would that would a performance and yeah and they they employed uh dr Zhao Carvajales who uh who joined them in sweden in 1958 and obviously kind of went on to to join that squad in winning brazil's first world cup um i think the reason it's taken so long kind of subsequently is 
it's probably, I mean, it's, I think there are a multitude of factors. I, I, I definitely think, you know, from speaking to psychologists and coaches, one of the things that kind of consistently comes up is, is football's kind of fear of, um, or kind of slight, slightly kind of ingrained conservatism in comparison to um, other sports in particular. Um, so, you know, instances of kind of, psychological sport in golf motor racing much more prevalent than than in football um and i think there are, you know, there are reasons for, for that you know i talked about kind of hyper masculinity um within the game that kind of you know fear of, of vulnerability um of of a kind of a slightly insular culture um again you know across across the game um so I think there are kind of you know factors like that, and then I, I I also I also think that it's there aren't loads of kind of high profile examples of psychologists that have you know gone in and and done you know fantastic work, even though that undoubtedly has happened over the course of you know the last um, 60, 70 years. Um, and I think you know hopefully the more that the subject is is talked about publicly um the you know the the the, the uh the easier it will be for, for psychologists to you know to really make an imprint on the on the game but i mean i suppose the positive thing you know to end on there is that um i mean i, I wrote in that that blog that i, I think you'd be hard pressed to argue there'll be more psychologists if not going to qatar than at least working with the teams prior to going out there or maybe kind of remotely than there will have been at any major tournament um mm-hmm. You know, so that's again kind of a sign of a sign of progress, and not just even, and and I suppose again, just kind of think about psychology more broadly, not not just psychologists, but you know, sleep coaches, uh, you know, professionals that um, are hired maybe to deal with specific issues. So you know, maybe clinical psychologists deal with mental health. So there'll, there'll be more professionalism attached to this this World Cup, I think, in that respect than than any other. Thank you. It's good to good to hear. So finally, I'm assuming that as a journalist, you have to engage with the emotional content of people's stories to make readers care enough to continue reading. How do you cope when you're immersing yourself in people's more painful stories? How do you keep yourself feeling nourished and protect your own well-being? Yes, I, I think I'm quite I'm quite lucky in that some of the stories that, that I, the, the stories that I write, generally speaking although kind of we do touch on kind of sensitive subjects, you know, we, we tend to talk about them pretty, pretty positively. Uh, you know, I, I, I think there are, I mean, the journalists out there, there's, you know, novelists out there do some fantastic work with people that have been through uh, a hell of a lot. Um, and I, you know, if I, if I put myself in that position, I would, uh, yeah, I, I, I think sometimes it would be a real, a real kind of struggle to, to kind of, you know, retain a sense of, of perspective but but by and large you know the, the people that I'm, I'm speaking to are uh, although they've been through an awful lot the you know generally speaking you know that they have kind of come kind of come through that they have kind of learned to um you know to to, to, to deal with kind of whatever issue that that they they've been facing so i yeah i think i think i'm quite quite fortunate in in that respect uh i mean, I, I think again it goes back to that sense of kind of you know just just trying to um you know retain a sense of perspective i know i have um you know an 18 month old 
son um, that helps me tremendously um, because he is not interested in anything that, <laughs> that, I'm, that I'm writing. You know, he has, um, he has very kind of very particular needs and, you know, you find yourself, um, you know, once you kind of, once you kind of deal with a subject, having to move on very quickly because frankly you have to um, with, yeah, with a, with a kind of, yeah, with a young family. So that's, that's, um, that's definitely a help. I also wondered whether actually the the stuff that you do in your freelance work, you're obviously really pas- passionate about football as a football fan. And I wondered whether um, focusing your freelance work on that was a, a way that managed to offset any other things that you might, other stories that you might be covering in the rest of your week. Yeah, that's, that's actually really, it's a really good point. Yeah. I, I definitely think that's, that's the case to some extent. I mean, a lot of the people, you know, you know, certainly, uh, people like kind of you know Davide Ancelotti you know Real Madrid assistant manager you know he's like I someone that I've kind of wanted to speak to for a long time so being able to talk to him about you know some issues that uh you know talks about Madrid's use of psychologists and you know taboos in Italy and that kind of thing that's just really fast as you said it's just really fascinating to be able to talk to some of these people so uh, that that does really help and as you say ultimately it's a game that you know I've played watched since I was you know, you know, five, six years old. So yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, it's very different to um to kind of a news beat where, it, uh, yeah, as you said, I think, you know, if you're not careful, then then uh, I, I guess kind of the rigors of the job could could kind of be quite, yeah, quite all consuming. Thank you, John. Really enjoyed having this conversation with you today. It's been really really interesting to to hear your take on things. Likewise, really enjoyed it. Thanks for. Uh, Thanks for having me on, guys. So, thanks very much indeed, John. One final question. Is Spurs going to finish above Manchester United this year? <laughs> oh, what a question to end on. Uh, I'm going yes, although not with a huge amount of confidence. So, fingers crossed. Touch and go, isn't it? Yes, yeah, thanks yeah. a lot. <laughs> Thank thanks you, John. Lot. Thanks, Dave.